And so today, we're continuing this sermon series called Jesus the Storyteller. And uh, we're learning a lot about these kind of statements that Jesus is making to these people. And yet, these are not just stories that have this like pithy moral at the end of them, but they are stories that are literally supposed to cause a direct response right then in the lives of the listeners. And it's going to cause two responses. One of these responses is it's going to draw people near. They're going to be like some of his disciples who were like, man, Jesus, what are you talking about? Like, teach us more, show us more about what you're trying to say about yourself, about the kingdom of God and about our lives. And yet simultaneously, these stories as well immediately cause others to distance themselves from the person and work of Jesus. And so I fully expect if that happened to Jesus, then it can happen to us as well as we preach and teach, as we pastor, as we shepherd, as we make disciples, as we spread the gospel beyond these walls. You've got to realize it's going to be an attractant to some and it is going to repel other people. And so as, as Officer Kyle read to us today, we appreciate him even with the introduction um, today, um, and reading our scripture, keeping what he read to us on the forefront of our mind, let's dive into what is taking place in this context and setting as Jesus begins to tell this story. Here, Jesus is speaking to a group of disciples, probably some um, others who are curious, and also um, some Pharisees or the religious people, the, the church people. And, and, and a lot of people are there just to see Jesus um, kind of maybe do some miracles and things like that, and yet as we've learned through this sermon series, Jesus kind of stops doing that stuff for the most part and just starts speaking in these really interesting things that we call parables. Instead of speaking real clearly, it's almost that Jesus is speaking in a mysterious language. These are kind of short stories that reveal something about Jesus, about the kingdom of God, and our lives. They're almost like a, a type of code, again, that calls some to draw to him while causing others to run from him and, and become angry. So in, in Luke chapter 16, Jesus is speaking to, once again, a diverse crowd of people, again, disciples, Pharisees, and then others who are on the fringe. And in this particular story, begins to tell us the story of a very wealthy man. And this wealthy man is so wealthy that he can actually hire someone to take care of his money. It's kind of called a steward or a manager. Uh, this employee would have been like his financial advisor. Wouldn't that be nice to have? You just make the money and you can pay somebody else to pay all your bills. That would be a pretty awesome deal. This guy would be a CFO, a COO. He would be the second most important person in this rich man's uh, company. He would have been his most trusted of servants. And yet this man is given the responsibility to handle all of this man's wealth, all of his possessions, all of his money, everything the rich man owns, this guy right here is in charge of being the manager of it. So his chief responsibility is distributing that out, making it rain for people, I guess, investing um, and making the rich man more money. This is his full authority has been given to him to buy, to sell, to purchase, to trade, to invest on behalf of 
of the rich man. But there is a problem, Jesus tells us, doesn't he? And the problem is this. Um, Somehow the rich man comes to know that the manager is wasting, stealing, and being dishonest uh, with the rich man's money. All right? And so to put this in modern terms, this man is stealing from the company. Um, he's embezzling. I mean, this is an Enron situation. He's, he's scheming. He's getting rich off of the rich man's money. Last November, The Atlantic uh, posted an article titled this, America's workers are out stealing America's shoplifters. This is what they said. The Global Retail Barometer, an annual report released late last week, revealed that American retail staff steal a lot more uh, from their employers than actual dedicated thieves. Employees, take note, Jack, (laughs) employees account for 43%, Mr. York, of revenues that were lost but shouldn't have been. Um, while shoplifters account for 37%. Usually this takes the form of unsupervised sleight of hand at the register, benefiting from uh, purposely canceling transactions that shouldn't be canceled or issuing unwanted return, unwarranted returns. And it can be accounted for about $18 billion in lost revenue last year in the U.S. alone. I found one stat that said in 2012... Uh, it stated that employees would steal $50 billion from U.S. companies that year. $50 billion. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce estimates that 75% of us in this room, if you've been an employee at some time in your life, have stole something. All right, That big pen that you think is real cheap and you take it home, guess what? That's stealing. All right? Um, any of those sources, how many thieves we got in here? All right, post-it note, thief, all right, Um, thievery, that's what this is, Um, and 75% of those people have done that, and over half of that 75% do so repeatedly, so have you stole two pins? You go to hell for that, all right, (laughs) Jesus died for that, all right, he he died on the cross because you stole a big pin, I mean, ridiculous. So when we, when we see this, obviously the issue of stealing from your employer isn't just an ancient one, but it is a current one as well. Um, I have some older family in Bowling Green, Kentucky, um, that several years ago probably gave uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars to a local financial advisor, along with a lot of older, other older people. And guess what that guy did? He stole the money. Bowling Green, Kentucky. Old people lost hundreds, probably altogether millions of dollars because a man in Bowling Green stole it. I was his son, youth pastor. That went over real well. He's now in prison for that. Okay? But guess what? None of those people got their money. They didn't get paid back any of that money. All right? Now, does that make anybody mad? Makes me furious, all right? The idea of of stealing thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars from your employer. That is a similar situation that what's taking place here in this story. The, The rich man has enough discernment 
knows enough about business himself, that's probably what made him rich, to see that the manager is being dishonest. Um, that, that, and he calls this manager to him and kind of is going to audit and see what's going on and ultimately fires the manager. So it appears this man has never worked beyond his desk. He's probably never done a hard day's labor in his life. And so this, the story tells us here that he begins to think, all right, what, what am I going to do? I've, I've been this man's money manager. I've taken care of all of his stuff. I've sat behind a desk most of my life. And, he's, and, he, and he tells us, right, he's like, I'm, I'm not strong enough to dig. All right, this is manly man here. I'm not strong enough to dig a ditch. And, and, and I'm too ashamed to beg. And so what I'm going to do tomorrow when I don't have a job, I go from living in the palace to living in the pig pen. So the guy comes up with a plan to save himself. All right? um, it's wrong, but the man's plan is still clever. You know, some of the best businessmen on the planet are drug dealers. I've seen Breaking Bad. All right? I know it to be true. Okay? That doesn't mean that what they're doing is right, okay? But it doesn't mean that they're not bad business people. They're great business people in a, in a, in a lot, a lot of ways. And so this man, he, he does something clever. He does something smart. He, he, he makes a good move for himself, even though what he's going to do here is wrong. So the manager, on the way back to, he's just gotten fired, on the way back to his office, I guess he calls like his coconut cell phone or something, and he starts calling um, the clients of this rich man. He starts getting in touch with these clients. Before they find out that he has been fired, this man does something really interesting. He calls him up and he says, hey, okay, here's the deal. You owe us this. How'd you like for me to cut off half of that. Would that make you, would that be good for you? And so imagine you're the person on the other line and, and all of a sudden U.S. Bank calls you and says, hey, we just want you to know you owe $150,000 on your house. Uh, we're going to cut that down to $75,000. Who, who, what are you doing here? Praise be to Jesus, right? Publishers Clearinghouse has just showed up at your house with a big fat check. You are jumping up and down. What do you mean you're taking half of my debt? All right? If you're talking to somebody and, and they're like, man, we're looking for, to get a loan for our house, what do you think that you would tell those people? Go to U.S. Bank. We had a loan with U.S. Bank, and guess what they did? They called us randomly one day and said, hey, we're going to take off half of your mortgage. Okay, so all of a sudden, that's what this man does. It, it's, it's guesstimated that he, he took about 20 months wages, almost two years worth, worth of wages that would have come to the rich man, and, and he essentially gives it back to the people that he has been doing business with and that owed him debts. But what does that do for the manager? It makes him look like the man. It makes him look generous. It makes him look good. It makes him look righteous. And anything that he has done to them in their past, they will easily forget when you're talking about giving people money back. So his hope is, is man, once I get fired here, then I can call up, you know, Bubba over here who owns us a barley, and I can say, hey, dude, I just lost my job, and I need a job, or I need a place to stay tonight. 
So that's what's going through this manager's mind. Is like, man, if I can get on the good side of these people, then they will welcome me into their homes, and I will be doing okay. After hearing this, the rich man finds this out, right? He can look at the books. He can tell there's things that we don't see here, but ultimately we can tell by Jesus' story that the, the rich man finds out what is taking place. And so the rich man, this is where it gets kind of interesting in interpreting, um, is that the rich man commends the manager. He commends him. He commends him for getting himself out of a mess. All right? Now, uh, this can be extremely difficult, as I said, in, in translation. I don't think that he's saying, or that the rich man is saying, or that Jesus ultimately is saying, that we should be, it's good that we're dishonest and wicked. All right? Don't believe at all that that is what Jesus is saying. He is simply stating that, that you finally did something to try to secure your future. And though you did something wrong, I can see that at, at least you're now trying to do something. Finally, you have been shrewd. Finally, you have been a good manager. Now, it was selfish. It was all about you. But I can at least see the good in the midst of the bad. So it's, it's not like the rich man saw this and changed his mind and goes, oh, this manager, he is a great manager. He just made me lose a bunch of money. That's not what's taking place here. However, um, he's still saying what? That this guy is dishonest and he still ultimately fires him. Now, Jesus tells a story. Why? As we've said over and over and over again, Jesus is trying to reveal something about himself. He's trying to reveal something about the kingdom of God, and he is trying to reveal something about us. The word manager, also known as the word steward, is, is used in several different places um, throughout the scripture. It's in reference um, to those who are followers of Jesus. Sometimes we are called, biblically speaking, stewards or managers. We even get this from the book of Genesis. Even before the fall, God creates Adam and Eve, and he tells them to take care of the planet that I've created. Take care of the vegetables. Take care of the plants. Take care of the animals. This is an idea of stewardship. It's an idea of management. Something belongs to God, and he has given it to us, the followers of Jesus, those whom he has saved, a responsibility then to steward what is taking place on this earth and with God's wealth. Paul often calls himself a steward of the faith in the New Testament, or a steward of the mysteries of God, or of the gospel. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 9-11, through 11, says that we are to use the gifts God has given us as stewards of God's Grace. So at the very basic level of what it means for you and I who have been saved to be a follower of Jesus is to then we have a responsibility in our salvation then to steward something. What Jesus is getting at here, what the Bible is ultimately getting at, and something that has been long lost amongst us, especially Western Christians, is this. You own absolutely nothing. Nothing. You have absolutely nothing. However, you're given the responsibility of giving, saving, and investing 
God's property and God's money. Read with me, Luke 16, 8b through 9 here, says this, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. See, Jesus continues this explanation uh, to his disciples. And many times in our culture, uh, or the sons of this world is in reference to unbelievers. And what Jesus is saying, he's like, there's something really messed up here amongst those who follow me and believers. And when I compare how they handle their possessions and, and how they handle money and these sorts of issues, compared how the sons of, of this world, the unbelievers, the unbelievers do a better job. They're better shrewd managers. They're better stewards. When I peer into Christians' lives, um, I see a discrepancy here. I see a, an issue with the mismanagement of funds, the mismanagement uh, of, of, of doing things. Even, you know, think about guys like Warren Buffett, all right? who um, gives, is worth bazillions of dollars and still lives in the house, I think, that his wife and him had the first, when they first got married. Okay? Um, he recently, in the last several years, has given $30 million to the Bill Gates Foundation. And when somebody asked him why he did it, he said, well, you know, there's a lot of ways to get to heaven. What's he saying? By being generous, now he may have been saying that tongue-in-cheek, but he's He's saying, by being generous, you know, I'm, I'm being a good man with this funds, okay? When you look at the most wealthiest people in the world, are they believers? We think about the best money managers in the world, are they believers? And so Jesus is saying, man, we need to be more shrewd. Now, we don't need to be sinful in our shrewdness. But we need to be more shrewd as believers, more generous, better with our money and finances and with the things that God has given us because we realize what the world doesn't realize is that it is all His. Every bit of it is His. The answer to the problem in our lives is not making more money, but is using money um, that we have um, to make better, more mature, and more generous uses of the funds that we've been given. Ladies and gentlemen, here's the deal. If you can't control the $20 that's burning a hole in your pocket, you will never be able to control $20 million. I've seen enough e-entertainment television and true life Hollywood to realize every, it's gonna, every red country person in Kentucky that is struggling, that wins the Kentucky lottery, do you, do, you know, do you follow those stories? Most of them are bankrupt, in prison, or dead. Why? Because they couldn't handle $20. And then they got $20 million or $565 million. And every, every relative from, I mean, somebody's gotten on those like, you know, ancestor, you know, where you find out your heritage and like you've got relatives from from England calling you wanting money. I mean this is extremely difficult. It's extremely sad. The answer is not getting 
more money, but it is using the money and possessions that God has given you to bless and to be generous toward others. It's, it's like the great theologian P. Diddy once said, I, I don't know what they want from me, but it's like the more money we come across, the more problems we see. More money, more problems. Okay? We don't need more money. We need more wisdom in the money that we have been given. God, in his infinite wisdom and care for his people, is wanting us to realize the importance of wealth while simultaneously realizing that one day it will fail. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, it says, He who loves money will be not satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. Later on in that same chapter, he says, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. One thing is for certain. Rich, poor, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, guess what, folks? We are all going to die. We're all going to die. And the thing is that we're in a world where people are consumed with building personal wealth portfolios. They're consumed with today of having enough money in their 401k. So hopefully, right before they die, we can finally live. How many people that you know have been banking on retirement and like the week before they die? Man, what a... Wasted investment. Not that you can't save, all right? But if, if you're waiting for this day when you are extremely old to finally start living, you have missed the purpose of your life, especially as a believer. If you're a non-believer, go for it. But believers should be acting and responding to the wealth that they have been given very differently than the way that the world is dealing with these things. This is a temptation for each one of us. Man, it's, it's a temptation for me. It's a, a temptation for you, especially in America. You know, uh, it's tax season, and I hope you've got that joy over with. But there's a commercial right now from H&R Block. Some of you have probably seen it, and it's got like a guy sitting behind a desk, and I think he's got like a green bow tie on or whatever. And it keeps saying at the very end of that commercial, Get your billions back, America! Anybody seen this? Well, Ava has heard this, and it's almost become a cuss word at our house. Because she just walks around the house. I'm telling you, she wakes up in the middle of her sleep. Get your billions back, America! Get your billions back. I mean, every time we watch TV and she's like, I'm like fast forwarding through the you know, DVR or whatever to get to the show. And Ava's like, no, no, no. This is my favorite commercial. Get your billions. And she, she tries to do this big, big voice. She, get your billions back, America. I mean, it's, it's cute the first time. <laughs> All right? That's what quickly happens. You know, but, but this is the heartbeat of our, of our gospel, of the American gospel is, man, get, 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 get. And yet the biblical gospel is not about what you can get, but it is better for you to give. And this is extremely tough. You know, I didn't want to tell anybody that I was talking about money this morning because you wouldn't have come. 
People don't want to talk about this. All right, it's, it's an issue. But brothers and sisters, the Bible, Jesus is telling there there is a much better way to live. There is a better investment. How we spend the percentage of God's money he has given each of us reveals the condition of our heart. Please, write it down. Think about it. Meditate upon it. For some of us, God is, is, is going to give, I, I hope that God makes some of you millionaires. Majority of us are never going to be that. But whether you make $20,000 a year or $200,000 a year, God has given you responsibility, and the way that you're using His money is a direct reflection of the condition of your heart. Literally. I'm thinking about this, paranoid about it all week, right? Have anxiety because I'm having to come to church to talk about money, right? And I hop into my truck yesterday, go get some medicine for my little boy, turn on the radio, and this is what the preacher said on the, the talk radio preaching show I was listening to. Um, he goes, and he's from Texas or something, he was like, stewardship is more about lordship than anything else. What's he getting at? How you steward God's money, every dime of it, is a reflection of what he has done or not done in our hearts. Matthew 6, 21 for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is wanting us to understand the importance of investing in the future. Investing in eternity. How do you invest in eternity? Who are you discipling? Who are you sharing the gospel with? What about your bank account shows that you are investing in eternal things? Or would it reveal that you are greedy and stingy with your money? Big questions. What's he getting at? He's saying this, put your money into eternity. Put your possessions into eternity. Okay? Invest in, in what is happening here on this planet now, yes, but invest in the kingdom that is to come. And he's not talking about, like has been done in some sects of Christian history, where you can pay enough to be saved. That is not what he's saying about. Actually, the money that he's saying, it's about giving it away so that you actually receive no benefit, really, until you get where? To the everlastings of everlasting. You're investing in something that you currently will not see. But this story even tells us one day you will. You're investing in, in, into your future, our future, eternity, not the here and now. Don't put your money into things that will rot or deteriorate. Put your money into things that will last forever. There are things that we have purchased that we thought, man, I can't wait to get this. Mid-80s, Nintendo, okay? It's my birthday, I'm at church camp. I come home, and for my birthday, my sister and my dad have opened up my birthday present and are playing it and have halfway beaten all the games. Happy birthday! But I was so excited to get that Nintendo. I mean, it probably cost my parents a fortune. I did not grow up in a wealthy home. Hard laborers, both my parents, even to this day. Dad's a workaholic, works six, seven days a week. I mean, mom's got congestive heart failure, won't stop working. I mean, I come from a long line, blue-collar, middle-class, hard-working people, and they slaved to make sure that me and my sister had nice clothes and Nintendo. Don't even know where that sucker is today. All right? 
But at the time, I thought, don't touch it. All right? I mean, it was my most prized possessions. I spent countless hours collecting baseball cards. Countless. Going to card shows, trading, trying to find this, trying to find that. Thought one day when my son, he'll love baseball. <laughs> no. All right? Elmo, yes. Baseball, no. All right? I'll give them to him. They'll pay for college one day. I sold them at a yard sale, all of them, thousands for $40 last year. Investing in things that do not matter. They rot. Most of the players that were good, we later found out, did steroids, and their cards went, anyway. Terrible investment. But it, to me, at the time, as a kid, those were my most prized possessions. And we sell them. If, if I was to go take pictures of our closets, what would I see? I have an addiction to coats. I can't tell you how many jackets I have and coats. How foolish would I look come in here wearing all of them? You can only wear one at a time. Now some of I've had, well I've had it for 10 or 15 years. That makes it okay. Shoes. I only can wear two at a time unless you got three legs. That's three. Piles, shoes, right? We have so much. And yet God is saying, give to things that will last. Give to gospel things. Give to eternal things. I saw an illustration by Francis Chan one time. I'll steal this from him. Thanks, Francis. If you listen, I know you do every week. Um, y'all don't, but Francis does. Uh, I can tell who's listening, who's not. God tells me. Um, it's this cool relationship we have. All right, so let's say for a moment that this rope, all wadded up there at the end, it keeps going and going and going and going and going. It represents eternity, right? Eternity, when is it in? Never. It's called eternity for a reason, all right? It, it keeps going and going and going and going and going and going on. And, and yet, this, let's, this little pink area, let's say that that represents your life and my life, okay? It's a, it's a very small part of the eternal scheme of things, and yet most of us are spending most of our time focusing solely on that dash, that red mark. A, a lot of us, we can't wait till it starts to fade out here. That's what we're really looking forward to. I mean, we really can't wait till right at the very end where we're on 20 different medications, can barely walk up to finally live. Yes! Right? And that's our culture. It's pouring into that. When we have the rest of all eternity to be consumed about and to be investing in, we spend most of our, our time, talent, and treasure talking about this right here. And yet, I know that's the culture, but it's not the Bible. It's not the Bible. 
God has called us to be living for eternity, be investing in eternity, thinking about eternal things. I'm telling you, sitting down with a person over a cup of coffee, talking about their lives, talking about their gospel, is a much better investment than just watching TV or, or, or a new movie. Not that those things are wrong or sinful, yet they can become those things if you are, are, are equating more wealth into that stuff than you are the kingdom of God. The image that we get from this story is that one day, listen to this, this is awesome. We, we see this in the passage that um, we, we get this picture that one day we are going to be greeted with new friends in heaven that we on this earth do not know and yet had gospel influence into their lives. Imagine being you investing. Last week we gave some money to Pastor uh, Mark Phillips who was here, which we'll talk about that even in this group. I could preach it again right now, okay? Because I think it's the most monumental sermon. He was able to capsulize all that Mission Church is about in, in 30 minutes that I've been trying to scream. Pastor Justin's been trying to scream for two years. He gets it. Mission is not an event. It's your life. You're called to sacrifice for it to suffer for it. We were able to, to invest in his ministry um, last week. And I thank you. It's because of your generosity that we are able to do those things. And yet we will probably no, never go to Niger. Hopefully some of us will. But the thing is, we'll never see all of the people that the gospel is being shown through Mark and Parker and those kids in the lives of those people. However, ladies and gentlemen, imagine going to heaven, being with God, and, uh, and, and an, uh, a person, a Niger believer, coming up to you and saying, saying, guess what? Because you invested into Mark and Parker's ministry, because you invested in the gospel, I stand before you, my brother, my sister in Christ, because of your eternal investment. That's a powerful thing. That's a powerful scene. See, I think I'm going to show that. So I, I think this is a picture. Some of you guys have seen this. I think Pastor Justin posted this on his Facebook. But this is exactly what I'm talking about when we're talking about investing in eternity. That's investing in the future. That's a group of Chinese teenagers in predominantly a closed area of China. It's pretty much closed off to the gospel. These are probably embezzled Bibles. We have 30 of them, 50 of them. You've got four apps of them, every version that you want. These people can't get it. And they're given it. And see how they respond. 
that's investing in eternity. Spreading wealth into eternal things. Put your money into ministry that will change people forever. And when you pass from this life into the next, we will experience true and better relationships. That's what he's ultimately getting at. Think about this. Not, not just this minimum, but, but giving extravagantly, generous, you know, generously, sacrificially to your local church and to other ministries. Even amongst those who claim to be followers of Jesus have a difficult time talking about money or giving money in a sacrificial way. Why and what does this reveal about us? Jesus isn't going to just talk about a truth. He's trying to get to the truth behind the truth. He's not just going to polish the fruit on our lives. He wants to know what is the deeply rooted issues that are taking place. I, I once heard that the last thing that is saved in all of us is our bank accounts. People who claim salvation, who claim to know and to follow Jesus, can be the most greediest people in the world. Jesus is calling us to repentance. He is calling us to give. He is calling us to be prodigal in our giving, realizing that, that they are, are not just giving toward today, but that we are giving toward eternity. Over the past 14 years of being in ministry, man, I've heard all sorts of things inside and outside of the church that kind of reveal our hearts and statements that people make, um, like this one. I go to a big church, so I don't need to give. Others will give. Um, I'm not going to get to the church so that the pastor can live better than me. Heard that one a lot. Um, I, I, I don't like, I don't trust the leadership. I don't like the decisions that they're making in regards to money. So I'm going to do one of two things. One, I'm going to start withholding my money. Two, I'm going to leave. Reveals something great about our hearts. It's, it's, a, it's a bartering chip that I've heard people make within church. They're claiming to be followers of Jesus, but this is the attitude behind their giving. Show me that biblically. I, I'm a college student, so that means I'm exempt until I get a real job. All right, Or I, I don't make enough money to give to these things. Or the, the most common one is, is all the church ever talks about is what? Money! Come in to me. Right? I mean, th these are constant statements. Do, do you understand the, the whispers of sin, Satan, and death that are found in every one of those statements? It's a struggle for you. It's a struggle for me. When you fill out your taxes, and if you've actually given to the church, that is a large chunk of money. And yet, Jesus is constantly calling all of us to give more and more. Maybe we need to live in smaller footage homes so that we can give more abundantly. Maybe we need to not eat out so much or not purchase this in order so that we can give even more. Many of the conversations, that they often begin to take place like this. Well, should I give 10% or should I give 10% of my gross or my net? Um, can we give to other organizations and not give to the church that we regularly attend? Uh, these are all questions that, that probably need to be discussed in some way, but, but I think that we are missing the point. We're missing the point when we do that. Today, we often say, what is, what is the least amount that I can give and still feel good about my giving? And still, you know, check that off. 
Jesus didn't have a problem with talking about money. If you have a problem with this today, I love you, but you have a problem with Jesus. Because Jesus talked about money more than any other subject other than the kingdom of God. More about going to heaven, more than going to hell, Jesus talked about money. In the 38 parables that Jesus tells, 16 of them deal with the subject of money. Why? Jesus seems to make it clear that the God of money is often God's main competition of our hearts. That's from Kyle Eidelman. Tim Keller goes on to say this, Money is the one of the most common counterfeit gods there is. When it takes hold of your heart and, and blinds you to what is happening, it controls your, you through anxieties or lust. It, it brings you uh, to put, a, put it ahead of other things. Later, Keller writes, For Jesus, greed is not only the love of money, but the excessive anxiety about it. Do you overspend? Do you hoard? If you're married, you're probably in that battle at your house because one of you is a spendthrift and the other one's like, We can't spend a dime. All right? Guess at my house. Reveals our hearts. Did, did you understand, though, that what Jesus is getting is that both of those can be sinful? The overspender and the hoarder. Because we're called to give faithfully and fruitfully. So if you're overspending, then you go, man, I can't give. But man, I got 20, 20 coats at my house. And that's me, Right? So the overspender goes, man, we've spent all this money, so now we can't give. The hoarder goes, ah, I'm not for so sure. We need to make sure we've got a lot of money in the bank. I, I want you to know, this is never going to be a church, even if we have multi-million dollars um, coming in every year, that's going to have multi-million dollars sitting in the bank. Because I think it's wrong for there to be people dying without the Bible, starving to death in this world, and for churches in America to have millions of dollars for a rainy day. This isn't that church, folks. We're going to put some aside. We have a financial team that is doing a bang-up job, a phenomenal job of overlooking these funds. We're, we're going to have a little bit of money to, to, to the side, but we're going to spend in some way, give away, and, and, and investing in the gospel, in the lives of people, every dime. Every dime. That's what the God, we're asking you to be generous. We want to be generous as well. As, and we want to, to be fruitful in our giving. Um, do, do you work to the point to where your quiet times, prayer times, family, and church family suffer? Write that one down, fellow workaholics. Even if you call it ministry. If these things are suffering because you always got to be at work and you think that your business will fall apart because you're not there, Something's wrong. And it, it may not be the worship of money. It could be notoriety. It could be um, even making ourselves... And man, I, I struggle with that. I, it's hard for me to turn off work. It's hard for me to go on vacation because my mind is constantly 
at work. There's a, an issue taking place when we do those things. In the New Testament, people gave to the local church, they gave to missionaries. They did not neglect their local church, but gave sacrificially and generously. And I believe that we can safely assume that they gave way more than 10% and did so joyfully because they understood the purpose of money and that money was a tool given to us by God, but it can never be God. Money, ladies and gentlemen, makes a terrible, terrible God. It does. A terrible one. Yet, many of us make God or make money our God and we don't even realize it. Uh, greed is probably the most justified sin in all of our lives. Jesus speaks against greed more than sex, homosexuality, divorce, substance abuse, etc. In verse 10 here, he, read, he says this, uh, One who is faithful in the very little is also unfaithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what which excuse me, in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And he goes on to say, You cannot. This is a suggestion. It's not a maybe. You can not serve God and money. You can't. The first thing that I would, I would conclude, or that we would see in the, in the Ten Commandments, right, is to have no other gods before me. I think that that's a big deal to God. And since Genesis chapter 3, every one of us in this room have struggled in creating other gods and placing them into the position to where only God should be. God calls these things idols. John Calvin once said that our hearts are idol factories. Anybody relate with that? I mean, idols can be a lot of things, not just money. It can be your kids, your job, uh, prestige, your home, your car. Uh, it can be your looks. All, all of these things can be gods in our lives. We are all prone to create these idols. Jesus knows this. It is within you, in everyone's very nature, to have a God. Gods um, cannot be destroyed, but they can be replaced. And Jesus is saying, you've got to replace whatever it is that you're worshiping. If it is money, wealth, notoriety, you must remove that from the throne of your life and place myself only where I can be. Because I'm a much better God than your money. Much better when we see this in Colossians 3, 5, Ephesians 5, 5, both speak of greed and coveting um, as being idols. And yet, when Jesus saved you, He dethrones these things. Read that little section, section there in verse 14 and 15. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all of these things and they ridiculed Him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. 
So sitting there, I don't know why the translators divide this, because that, that section should be with the story. What's it saying? Jesus is speaking to his disciples, but who is also listening? The church people. The Pharisees, the, the people who really know the Word of God, who really have this all together. And, and what does it say? Does, does Jesus say to them, and the Pharisees were the most giving, sacrificial. They lay down their altars on the altars of ministry, all of their time, talent, and treasure. They gave joyfully. They didn't give under compulsion, but they gave out of the true heart and joy of their hearts and lives. Man, we want to give to eternity. We want to give lavishly. We want people to think that we are absolutely ridiculous in our giving. Is that what Jesus said to them? No. Is that how he described the church people? No. Describe them as saying what? They loved money. They loved it. Let me give you this illustration full of illustrations from other people today. This one's from Andy Stanley. Saw this at a, a Catalyst conference several, several years ago. I want to get really practical with this. Let's say that this represents your paycheck. It's 10 $1 bills. And I use 10 because I stink at math. And so I know percentages based on 10, tens. And I don't know this common core math stuff, I, 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 I'm like, go ask your mom. She's a teacher, because I have no idea how to answer the questions in math that they teach now. So you get your paycheck, and if you sit down, like Laura and I, we try to sit down every two weeks or so, and we, we budget out our money for two weeks, and then we budget out, save, all those sorts of things. And when, when you're sitting down, and you're, and you're looking at your paycheck, uh, this is, just so you know, for Illustration, looking at gross here, not net, just so we can. The, the, the Bible calls us to, to give first, the first fruits from Old Testament and New Testament, to whom? To God. Well, traditionally, what does our mind go? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ten percent of ten. Right? There you go, Eric. Thanks for coming today. Appreciate your worship. <laughs> Hope I get you home. Right? I mean, that, that's what we think. So that, that leaves $9. Yet God has called us to be generous in our giving, sacrificial in our giving. But that still leaves me Eight dollars, right? Well, I, I think it is wise to save. Even Proverbs says that you should leave something for your children's children's children. It's not a bad thing. Save. Now the question is, what do I get to do with this? Right? Money, money, money. Mine on my money. Money on my mind. Snoop Dogg. Right? Isn't this what we do? And so we go things like, oh, we've, we've got bills to pay. Um, house, whatever bills that you've, you've got to pay. And then this is what i got left. Right? 
And he goes, this is what I get to spend. Whose money is this? It's God's too. This money is God's too. All of those $10 were God's. So if I'm going out here and I'm buying porn with that, I've just bought porn with God's money. If I'm going out here and going to the, the Chinese buffet, which I quite enjoy, and I'm now gluttonous, then I've used internal investment, what God has given me to steward, and I've wasted it or overindulged with whose money? God's money. That's how it practically plays out. It is all His. Every bit of it. Because you know what happens when I don't spend that wisely? I'm no different than the unjust steward. Because who's all that money that the unjust steward was wasting? The rich man's. Now, in closing, here's the struggle. When you look at all of what we've said, here's the struggle for you, here, here's the struggle for me. Is right now I feel extremely guilty. Right? Can feel extremely guilty. Can feel pressured. Right? This is, you know, this typically happens in a, in a lot of circles, and this, this isn't a bad thing. We've just chosen not to do this. Um, but if you've grown up traditionally where they pass the plate, anybody grew up in that church? All right, the bag, the KFC bucket, if it's at an outdoor event, <laughs> you know, whatever it is, they typically have someone stand up here, right? And they read a scripture, typically out of Malachi, and talks about you robbing God. All of that is true. We, we even see that in the New Testament. We see that with Jesus. And, and we can feel this pressure weighing on top of us, and, and the bag comes. Anybody ever fake gave before? You know what I'm talking about, right? You put your hand in the bag. You got a closed fist, right? You put your hand in the bag. You open up your hand, slosh it around a little bit. Makes it sound like change falling. Take your hand out. All right? Why? Because you, you feel the pressure. It's like, you know, or you feel this. Like, they come, time to take up the offering. Everybody's like, hope I got something. <laughs> right? I, I, I've got to give something. Why? Because we feel guilty. Though all of the things that I, I believe today, and please address me if it's been wrong, I believe that what has been said today is true. However, this is what you've got to get this morning. This is the most important thing of what has been said over the last 55 minutes. This is the most important thing. You know why we should give sacrificially? Do you know why we should give generously? Do you know why we should give joyfully? Do you know why it should be a pleasure to go, man, I, I'm going to sacrifice in order that I might give. I'm going to sacrifice in order that people in China may have the Scripture. I'm going to sacrifice my time, talent, and treasure for, for eternity. Do you know why? Not 
not because in some way you can earn with those things your way into heaven. But when you take all of that and you compare it in view of the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you look at the gospel and then you look at your money, the only correct response for any of us is to go, here you go. It's yours. It's all yours. I can't buy my way, but I realize you are God and I am not. And because of that, I sacrificially everything that is within me. I lay down my time. I lay down my talents. I lay down my treasures. And I I give an abundant amount. I give generously to whomever I can give to for the sake of the kingdom of God. Lord, I am pleased. My gift is puny compared to what you have given me or us. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that in or by his poverty you may become rich. Idols can be destroyed, but they can be replaced. Mission, we must learn to be a place where our idols with the person excuse me, replace our idols with the person and work of Jesus. We must be willing to lay down our desires, our time, our talents, our treasure in seeking God for a greater reward, an eternal reward, instead of earthly one. Jesus laid down his eternal wealth to give us eternal life. Once realizing this, the only proper response is to give generously toward eternity. This is the beauty of why we should give. This is the desire of why we should give. It shouldn't freak us out out to talk about money unless we're guilty of using God's money in a poor way it should be man this man this is the kind of congregation I want us to be I want us to be a generous congregation even if it doesn't make sense sometimes I think we should be good stewards we should you know be good managers we can all fall into the trap of of wise unwisely using money and yet God is calling us to invest in something much greater than all of us, and that is the kingdom of God. And one day, when He comes back and He sets this place anew, we're going to meet person after person after person whom we did not know on this place as it is right now, who were, were radically and eternally moved by the gospel of Jesus Christ and how we eternally invested in that gospel with our time, talent, and treasure for the sake of the glory of God and for the good of His people. That's something worth giving to. That is awesome. At the end of the day, we don't want to be guilt givers. And if you're feeling guilty today, and this is dangerous, I get it. Don't give. If you're a guest, Eric, don't give. All right? Don't give. You know? If you don't trust me, don't give. But ask yourself why. Because, man, I, I don't want you to be a guilt giver. And I don't think God wants your money. Guess what? He owns a, a thousand cattle on a thousand hills. Like, you can't get any more wealthier than Jesus is. He owns it all. Like he's like the dragon, the smog in the Hobbit. Like he's got a lot more gold than that lizard does. Okay? He's got infinite amounts of wealth. And so man, if in sin, Satan, and death, you're feeling guilty today, or you don't trust your pastors, or, or blah, blah, whatever it is, don't give. Because man, I, 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 I truly mean that. I don't want to guilt anybody into giving. My desire is that we will become, as I was talking to Llewellyn yesterday at our D3 thing, 
that we would become to realize who God is so much that when we compare all other things to who he says that he is, it is, as Paul says, a he.